So we're going to do repeal and replace. Very complicated stuff. Tests, office visit, pills, hospitalization. What do they all actually cost? $330 billion with a B. Monday marks the beginning of open enrollment in the health insurance marketplaces. This is confusing. You're listening to Health O'Clock, show 14. And it is recorded on March 26, 2017. We are your source for health news, trends, and insights. So now it's time to talk about healthcare. Hi, Jay. Why, hello <laughs> there, Andrea. Well, we are back again. Sorry, everyone, talking about end-of-life care. Again. <laughs> again. But we do have a really fascinating interview today. Um, uh, talking again about end-of-life care. And so I think let's go ahead and jump right into the interview. I don't see why we should stop. Here we go. Well, we are actually sitting here with Matthew. We're not sitting. We're here with Skype, the magic of uh, the Internet. But uh, he is uh, a chaplain A or more in the lines of a seminarian who does work with, um, well, heck, I'll let him explain it. Uh, what what exactly <laughs> is your role in the hospital? Okay, uh, well, this summer I was um, a chaplain student in a program called Clinical Pastoral Education, and you uh, work with people who um, are sick and or dying, and uh, the hospital I worked at had a trauma bay, so you would go into the trauma bay with patients who had just come in from an accident, um, and you spend time with them, you talk with them, and you talk with families. Uh, and um, now I'm moving towards just working with people who are dying or lonely, so I work with a program called No One Dies Alone, um, So, and I recommend every hospital have this. So uh, if patients are known to have no family or friends and they are dying in their last hours, volunteers come and be with them during that time. And uh, respite visitors are visitors who visit people who are sick and alone in the hospital and just need someone to talk to. So that is um, what I do. And I'm also uh, currently a nursing student um, at Holy Family Uni uh, University in Pennsylvania. You, sir, are a great human, I must say. that is <laughs> It's really impressive. That is way impressive, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very impressed about this program even. Um, but let's talk about end-of-life care. Um, obviously, you've kind of been around death. What mm. have you seen good in the process of the end-of-life care that you've experienced? Definitely there's good uh, aspects of it. The best end-of-life care is that end-of-life care that involves the family. And when the family is on board or on the same page, and when the medical staff and the family and the patients are all on the same page, and everyone's on the same page, the process is very good. And it's very um, healthy, provides a space for grieving for the family and for the patient and provides yeah, adequate, adequate care. So that's the health, the death care or the end of life care is best when everyone's on the same page and has the same expectations. I see. Is it mandated that they have to stay in their hospital bed or are they allowed to go home or what kind of 
how's how do decisions get made? I think we're in the healthcare seeing the move towards patient-centered care. So the patient ultimately decides where they will spend their last days. The issue is, is unfortunately, does insurance pay for it? Are there beds available? And is there agreement with the staff? And will the facility take on a particular patient? So an issue might be if a patient is requiring aggressive acute care, then a hospice care just can't take that on. And in that case, then the, the patient would unfortunately have to stay in an acute care hospital. Yeah, the goal is the patient ultimately decides. And usually patients do not want to die in the hospital, but because of other circumstances, sometimes they have to they have to stay there. We talked about the good uh, that you've seen. What's the not so good? What's the bad? What's the sticky stuff? What's the days like? And what what happens when when it just goes wrong? It goes wrong when patients and family members and uh, medical staff are not on the same page and. It goes wrong a lot when patients or family members don't want to accept a diagnosis. It goes wrong too when this is, and this is unfortunate, is that when a patient and family have have acknowledged, you know, that this person is going to die, but they have to stay in acute care, and then the medical staff um, in acute care hospital will sometimes, unfortunately, neglect the care of that particular patient, you know, they're going to die. So the communication starts dying down and the care starts dying down. So that would be a bad, a bad situation. But mostly it is, it is the family and the patient unwilling to kind of take a, a, a proper or, or a, a real bearing of where they're at. And when that happens, then you're having a break, a breakdown. Um, and then things end poorly. And this, all of a sudden, um, they're still discussing and, you know, and, and no one's prepared. Uh, that's a good segue into you're talking about sometimes you're in an acute care facility and the doctors and nurses are, are there to cure people. And yeah. so when someone's in a situation where they cannot be cured, uh, that leads us into palliative care. Real quick, what's acute care? I'm normal guy. Oh, here. that's all right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, acute oh, yeah, care. No. Oh, go, go ahead. ahead. Go ahead. Uh, acute care is more like you have a disease. I'm gonna fix it. It's the like concrete medical things that are done to fix someone. It's what you think of when you go to a hospital. You yeah. they do something, they fix you. I see. Okay, so continue on. How does being in a hospital, or maybe going to hospice, or maybe going home? How does that feed into? Palliative care, and from your point of view, what is palliative care? Palliative care, how um, I'm, I'm learning it, how because I'm not an expert in the, uh, on the field um, by a long shot, but from the palliative care team that I worked with, palliative care actually is not just end of life. The goal of palliative care is to to kind of have a form of therapy regimen that increases the comfort of the patient during a particular condition. So if, say, for instance, you have an amputated leg or neuropathy or diabetes, like a diabetes with a very painful neuropathy, um, palliative care would be an option. It doesn't mean we're, we're, gonna, we're killing you off. Uh, it, it just means that we believe that we've gone as far as we can um, to try and fix this problem. Now it's living with it, and palliative care helps people live with conditions that, that otherwise might be painful or... A life change. Huge yeah, life change. Precisely. And and it's and it's psychological, too, because then you start setting this idea of, of goals and what you want in, in your life. And the, the palliative care staff, doctors and nurses, are trained in that. So then you can start setting goals for yourself. And again... 
you start getting the family and the doctors and the patient all on the same page. And then from there, you definitely have a better plan of care after than not having that. Mm. So it sounds like communication is almost one of the biggest difference makers on whether it's a good experience or bad experience, whether it's info to the doctor or all the family being on the same page. Uh, yeah, it is. And and with that, it's also expectations and goals. So, you know, you walk in an ICU unit and, you know, you see a guy and that machine's breathing for him. That machine is, you know, is, is beating his heart. That machine is making sure his kidneys function or has a dialysis machine. You know, that machine is um, making sure that uh, he's pooping or, or whatever. And then, you know, the wife comes in and says, well, how's he doing today? You know, it's like, well, um, let's, let's hope there's not a power outage. You know, it's, I mean, it, there there comes a point where you know, it's like, OK, well, let's seriously look at what we're looking at. Mm-hmm. And some patients and some family members don't want to do that. And that's where you have the breakdown. I think for me, the best way to start that conversation, because that is a difficult conversation to have is what do you understand about the di- like what is what do you understand about the diagnosis repeat to me or tell me what you know about the diagnosis and then secondly what do you understand about the prognosis and from there you can probably start having that conversation to find to understand what the patient or and the family member understand and what they don't understand or finally having them say i have stage 4 cancer i probably only have six more months to live you know to have them say it makes makes them feel quite feel accepted better yeah so So do you think uh, it sounds like there might be a communication difficulty where doctors don't like giving that kind of news but do you think it's also a society thing where we don't want to think about death and we don't want to talk about death even though it happens to all of us I've learned that even even from nursing school and from my time in the hospital, a doctor never wants to say I can't cure that or I don't know. So they're trying, <laughs> so they never want to say that, and you never really want to hear that from a doctor. No, um, because but, they'll try everything uh, they can to try yeah, to help you. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah, we're we're going to make you live whether you like it or not. And um, <laughs> I think that a society issue. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to face our own death, let alone our family's death. And I don't think that as a society we have the coping skills set in place. And uh, I mean, even if someone does die, I mean, what do you have like two days of paid bereavement and then you're expected to just go back to life as usual. I mean, the good news is, is that there are some hospitals that are taking the initiative and training staff and having chaplains on hands, train nurses, train doctors to have that conversation. The biggest thing is, like I said, providing that space where people can feel, can mourn, can grieve, can be frustrated, can question so, but no, I think I, I agree with you. I think that he does not allow that conversation because of that. We're sort of deer in headlights when you're going to die. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know I would be. <laughs> yeah. <I> mean, <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> so what advice would you give to a millennial, just a, a kid off the streets about end of life care? What what should that kid be thinking? You know, what what would you tell that kid to better prepare him? Or her. 
I well, what you're saying in our last segment, I think it's important. I think it's important to do advanced directives or at least have that conversation with your loved ones, even and as a younger person. Even as a younger person, um, I mean, yeah, I mean, I was in a I was in a motorcycle accident in August, you know, and you know, luckily I was conscious during the whole, or unluckily I was conscious during the whole time. <laughs> oh no! Yeah, if I didn't have that conversation with my family, you know, something it could have gone worse. You know, any day anything can happen. We just don't think it can. So I think even as a young person having that conversation. And I also think psychologically accepting the fact like, okay, one day I will die. So that knowing, thinking about that and what do you want your last days to be like? I think, I don't think it's morbid to have those kind of thoughts. And I don't think it's morbid to have a plan at all. You've dealt with people who knew they were going to die. I got to know, have you ever seen anybody just go crazy and like live it up and just eat ice cream and run down the street naked and, you know, just live up their last moments on Earth. This is Jay's last directive. <laughs> um, no. I, I, well, unfortunately, when I see them, <laughs> it's usually like 10 to 30 minutes after they got the news. Um, so they're not really at that stage yet. Um, wow. <laughs> I don't want to bring levity to it because it's certainly not, but it's definitely a, a down time and it requires a lot of silence and patience and sitting with and just being present with someone while they process it or more. And if their family's present to encourage them to be, it's probably not a really good answer, but I haven't seen it. I'm sure. I mean, maybe in a couple months later, they, or if they're still alive, which some of them probably weren't, but if they were, they probably live it up. But yeah, right after. <laughs> no one that really, you know, So does, thrilled. Every day that you do this job, just is it just awful? Is it just sadness? And how do you deal with this so frequently? It, I mean, it is sad. There, it's it's definitely sad. But at the same time, it's it can be beautiful to be a part of that process for someone else. So I think that for me, I think having a spirit of faith and a spiritual framework to be able to cope with that that pain. But I think also it's very rewarding, though very difficult. I'm not saying it's not difficult work to be a part of someone else's process of accepting the fact they're going to die and being a part of that process of them moving on. You know, that is a very sacred time. And I think that actually I don't mind it because I feel like a lot of times out in the outside world, there's a lot of pretense and there's a lot of fakeness. But at these times, at those sacred times, people are usually stripped down to who they are. And I can deal with them much better at that point. And it is raw and it's difficult, but um, it's like I said, it's a sacred time. So, so do people, do they express gratitude for their life? Do they express regrets? What are, th- what are their thoughts in those moments? I think it depends on where s- someone is. One patient in particular, she, we use the language called, it's called a life review. And if someone is near death or knows they have that diagnosis, it's not uncommon for them to want to talk about their life, their life accomplishments, what they accomplished, what they're proud of. So in particular, one patient, she was rather young. I think she was only 48. And she found out that she had a uh, brain tumor and it metastasized. So she only had probably two months to live. And she had just found this out the day before. And she talked about all the relationships she's had and all the relationships she wished she would have amended, you know, the regrets she had with that. Sadly, she um, wasn't reconciled to her mother before she died. Her mother died. And she she said that when it kind of stuck with me. She goes, doesn't matter how old you are or what's, you know, whenever when life gets tough, you just want your mom. So mm-hmm. it's pretty yeah. sad. Hmm. Uh, 
I hear other people, they, they're worried about their family. I had a 36-year-old. She had a stage four cancer. She only had, I think, three months to live. And she was just worried about, I mean, her husband was quite young. She had two young kids. So she was just worried about how her husband would cope and, and sad that she wouldn't see her kids grow up. So I think there's a lot of, I think if people are younger, they're sad that they won't have more life. And I feel if people are older, I, I notice life reviews or, you know, looking back on sort of regrets on what they wish they would have done. I never, I will say this, um, I've never heard someone say they regretted being too kind, um, <laughs> regretted being too merciful, yeah. uh, regretting being too loving. I never heard that, you know, so I guess it's a, a lesson for all of us. <laughs> wow. So does it change how you live your life being exposed uh, to this all the time? Or do you think about it when you're just out in the world? Like call your mom. Uh, more I th- and stuff? Yeah, I, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I think it does. I I think it's definitely, of course, made me think of me a more a lot of a lot about death and a lot about death planning. So when I get older, you know, if I'm diagnosed with stage four cancer, and they're like, "Well, you have," we can either do four months of palliative care or four months of aggressive chemotherapy that might give you an extra month. I'm going to go with the palliative care simply because I don't want to spend the last four months of my life vomiting pooping my pants. And it, and because of the side effects, I might die sooner anyway. So it's definitely like changed my, per, my, my value system on really preferring quality of life over quantity of life. So I think that's how it's mainly changed how, how, I, how I live and how I see life. Okay. In the administration of a hospital and, and really corporate, many times the worker bees and the people down the food chain, the people actually doing the work and, and in the room will see problems and issues that don't necessarily make it up to like the CEO or the person making the calls. <laughs> Do you see yeah. any of that in your, uh, like if, if there was something you would tell the, the head guy or g- gal, do you have any suggestions that would help with the end of life process? I think that initiating the conversation earlier in someone's plan of care is preferable. Even if they reject it, at least it plants a seed. Um, I remember I was doing rounds with uh, rounds. Do you, do you all know what rounds are? It's something with nurses and doctors, yeah, and right? Checking yeah. in Shifts. on people. Is that a shift thing? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, so so pro- like once a day, the nurses and doctors get together on a particular floor, and this happens on all the floors, but then um, they go around each patient, and they talk about what, what's going on with the patient and what their plan of care is and what the hope, the goals are, and then they move on. So everyone has this on the same page of, you know, care. Well, I remember this one guy, he was 86, he's, he's old, 86 years old, he has kidney failure, which is never a good thing, you know, is uh, a he has a COPD, his chronic shortened breath, his heart's failing, can't, his GI tract is shutting down. And they asked, I remember, remember like the nurse asked, so, so does anyone have any ideas on what we should be doing? And everyone was silent. And here I am, the chaplain, like, well, have, has anyone talked to him about palliative care? And they all looked oh at me and gosh. laughed, like, oh, you're sending them, sending them to the to the grave early, are we? I mean, I laughed with them, but on the other hand, I'm like, okay, what are we what are we doing here? I mean, yeah. what, <laughs> this man is 86 years old. He's lived he's lived a life. All, all the all the probably interventions we're going to be doing is going to be causing this man suffering. Has he even been asked about palliative care? Yeah. So and there's kind of a I, conflict between the the doctors think, oh, we're condemning him to death if we send him there. We got to yeah. save him, keep him alive. Yeah. And yeah. palliative care is thinking about, well, he's going to have a better quality of life over right. here. That's correct. Yeah. And how much and, and not and not to say that life is like money or life, like we're not I'm not putting a price tag on, on life, but I am saying the la like you were saying, the last year of life 
a lot of money is spent on that last year. And what if the option or of saying, okay, we can aggressively, uh, we're not, we're not cutting care and we're not, we're not stopping care. It's just a different type of care, but we're, we're going to stop aggressively trying to treat this um, particular illness. And we're going to make you comfortable. And is that something you want? It's not just about money savings. I think it would save money, but it's also giving people that option, you know, like interventions and, and medical treatments, they, they hurt, you know, you know, if you're giving people drugs that are side effects and I don't know, I just, I find the medical treatment can have adverse effects and it's just giving that patient an option. Right. Um, and I always think, I always think, yeah, palliative care sounds way better, but I never know until I'm actually in that situation. I might be the person that's like, yeah, do everything right. you can. We're going to fight <laughs> <Do> this. <everything. laughs> right. All right. And well, what's interesting too, is I found this out. So say for instance, Sandra, you know, um, she has stage four ovarian cancer and she could say, I'm going to go to hospice. Okay, Sandra, we're sending you to hospice. If Sandra has a heart attack at hospice, they will rush her to the hospital and the hospital will treat her heart attack. Wow. <laughs> and hospice, then send her back to hospice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They like, if you're sent to hospice, you, you cannot be treated for the particular ailment that you're sent for. So she won't receive any more treatment for ovarian cancer, but she will be treated for the heart attack. <laughs> That's so, crazy. And then what do you do with that? So, yeah. That, I did find that out. So, what the... If you send to hospice, you have to die from the ailment you're going to send to hospice. No hey, hey, don't you go dying on that heart attack, man. <laughs> right. Wow. Right. Which is like a problem in itself. You know? That's funny. All right. I have one more question for you. For, first off, you've been amazing. You, this is an amazing conversation. But I'm kind of the normal guy on, on this this whole shebang. So I'm going to ask, I snuck in one normal guy question. <laughs> Excellent. <Okay. laughs> so in your opinion, what on Netflix is worth binge watching? On that, something was just suggested to me on the topic, actually, and I haven't seen it yet, but I heard it was really good. It was from a friend in England, so I don't know if this counts. It's called The C Word. The C Word. Um, have you seen? Yeah, it's, um, the C Word, of, of course, is cancer, but um, apparently, it's a it's a comedy comedy of all things a comedy series <laughs> on this latest uh, track through cancer and the, all the problems with the medical health the the American healthcare system and interactions with her son. So I think I might check that out. As far as like as binge watching, I don't know about Netflix, but we are watching on Amazon. We're going through all the Star Trek. So we did Next Generation and now we're on Deep Space Nine and we have to go through Voyager. So (laughs) I don't know what that's worthy and binge watch worthy. (laughs) The answer is yes. (laughs) Who's your favorite captain? Picard. Yours is Picard. Oh yeah. I love Picard. What about you? Who's your captain? I'm going to have to go with Captain Janeway. Uh, I don't don't know. I I like them. That's the problem. I like, I like them all for their own. I mean, I really like I really like DS Nine because it's darker. Because Gene Roddenberry just you know had died. I heard that fantastic. I've never seen DS Nine. Yeah, it's really dark. I mean, they had. I mean, it's it's really it's much darker because like Bajor is the main planet that the DS Nine is by, and they were occupied by the Cardassians for fifty years, which was brutal occupation. So a lot on reconciliation, forgiveness. You know, how do you move beyond violence? You know, so really, actually, probably really good questions for us today. But wow. um, and then, of course, my mom and I got hooked on the Americans. So <laughs> I heard that was really good. That's on the list. It is, it, and 
it's a very ironic. I find myself like I'm in the middle of the show and like I'm rooting for the KGB. What it's wrong? <laughs> <laughs> that's how they get you. <laughs> that's yeah, that's how. Yeah, exactly. I know this is all a Russian plot, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, funny. Well, Matthew, you have been absolutely fantastic. Thank you for taking time out of your day to talk with us. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you very much. And if you guys have any more questions, feel free to ask. So you got it. Okay, we're back. What a interview. Wow, that was really interesting. We need to thank Matthew because he went above and beyond. That was awesome. Yeah, he. I, I we didn't get to a lot of it, but he did a ton of research just to sit down and talk with us. And he was so helpful and really insightful um, thoughts into end-of-life care. So thank you again, Matthew. And that, my friends is the end of this show. Thank you all for listening. Uh, please subscribe to us on iTunes. Um, share us on Facebook. Why not? Anyway, we very much appreciate you listening to us. And next time, we won't be talking about death. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> all right. See you next time, everyone. Bye.